is What Shall We Do About with Sam Robinson. Hello and welcome to What Shall We Do About, the show that tries to solve the world's less pressing problems. What's your relationship with money like? And how much has your upbringing impacted that relationship or your view of dollars and cents? Are you always craving more money? Or maybe you're really good at spending, not so good at saving. Now look, to ask the question, what shall we do about money? If you're hoping that I get a financial expert on this episode, well, you're about to be disappointed. But I actually think I've gone one better. Rick Morton grew up on a station in rural Queensland in what can only be described as poverty. He's since gone to university, become a journalist, and is currently the senior reporter at the Saturday paper. But his view of money is still informed from an upbringing without it. I asked Rick about growing up poor, being chased by a debt collector as an adult, and what our government and welfare systems can do better to support those going without. Rick Morton, so great to have you on the podcast to talk all things money. How are you doing? I'm good, Sam. How are you? Yeah, Thanks good. for having me. Now, look, uh, you're not a financial expert, I guess. Uh, I could get a financial expert on to talk about money, <laughs> but there's a reason why I've got you on. We'll get to that in a sec. But, look, I've read your memoir a couple of months ago, uh, 100 Years of Dirt, which came out a couple of years ago. For those those listening who haven't heard that, uh, read that memoir, can you share a little bit of your story growing up in remote Queensland? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the, the potted history, I guess, um, if you like. Um, you know, I was born into uh, this kind of cattle station dynasty, I guess is one way of putting it. My father, uh, the Morton side of the family, my grandfather owned seven uh, sheep and cattle stations the size of Belgium collectively. Um, and they were just truly kind of creatures of their environment, I guess, in that it was just this harsh, cruel and... Uh, landscape and that was exactly what that family was like um, and I spent you know the first seven years of my life on the cattle station which was about a thousand square kilometers um, or I'm trying to think of that in acres or hectares and I can't to be quite honest <laughs> it's a um, lot of land and it was just this very it's a lot of land I try to explain it to people and even I can't wrap my head around it because you have to drive it really to feel it um, but you know growing up I it was just me and my brother for the first uh, seven years of my life before my sister was born and it was just an incredibly isolating experience and 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 quite tough, particularly for my mum, who wasn't from that type of family or even from the land herself. She was a suburban, um, you know, regional Queensland woman. And by the time, you know, things came crashing down in 1994, um, it was all kind of centred around this horrible accident where my brother was burned. He had third-degree burns to about 45% of his body. And... Uh, my sister was three weeks old at that point, and my mum had to go to Brisbane on the Royal Flying Doctor service with him, and they were there for about two months. And while they were gone, I was stuck at home with my dad, who then had an affair with our 19-year-old governess. Mm. And by the time mum came back, the whole thing just exploded, essentially, and, and dad uh, kicked us out. He froze the bank accounts, and we had literally nothing, like just actually nothing. And mum had been out of the workforce for 15 or so years at that point. So she had no skills, no life skills, just nothing. And that was essentially the way I see it, the start of our, our new life as a family from that moment. The, the thing that really got me reading this book is I think I had just, in my whole upbringing, I think you and I are the same age. I'm 33, Rick. And even yes, yes, same. I hadn't given any thought to what 
life on the land, and, and I mean on the land, I mean in a remote setting like this, is like. I just, you have those fantasies of, oh, you know, you're chasing cattle and you're enjoying just the countryside and it's, this is next level. Like, mm. if you you talked about your your brother's injury, he was burned, and yet, how long did you have to wait for for any medical care? Like, you had to wait a long time for the Royal Flying Doctors Service, and even th- there's issues with flying at night. Like, it, it's very isolating. Yeah, it's it's you know, like you never feel, and I think that does something to the psyche of a person. I mean, you are so geographically isolated, but socially and emotionally as well. Um, and, you know, that day, uh, well, I remember it so vividly that day. Um, it was Father's Day 1994, so September, and it was hot, hot as Hades. And my brother was burned, uh, you know, he was in this car servicing pit looking for a, a bolt from a motorbike that the jackaroo had sent him down there to find, and he didn't have a torch. And the lighter gave him, the jackaroo gave him a lighter instead. And the whole thing just went up in a fireball. I was there. I was looking over the edge of the pit when it happened. And that was about 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And it took a couple of hours before the Royal Flying Doctor Service could get there because they were at the Birdsville races that day, mm. um, which is on the other side of Charleville where their base is, and we were further south. And they had to come back by Charleville to refuel the plane and then come to get my brother and stabilise him on this kind of dirt airstrip before they could even take off. And by that point, it was late afternoon, slash the sun was setting, and we had to light these beetroot tins filled with kerosene to make a kind of makeshift lighting strip so that they could take off and, and make sure there were no kangaroos um, because that is a very common accident with Royal Flying Doctor Service. And he didn't make it to emergency in Brisbane until midnight. Mm. Um, that's the kind of turnaround we're talking here. And he, he should have died um, by rights. I mean, the fact that he didn't get a severe infection or um, just go into shock and have a heart attack is beyond me. And, you know, this is so common. Like (laughs) this happened to our family, but we knew so many others growing up. You know, there were families who had kids who died in house fires um, or in, you know, they were gored by bulls or, (laughs) you know, any number of, you know, there was a jackaroo that was struck by lightning. Mm. Um, It was just constant. Death was everywhere. And we kind of just accepted it until it really hits that close to home and then, um, it upends everything. All of those circumstances are, are really make for a really hard way of living on the land. But there's also the issue of really it's it's poverty in many ways, isn't it? Well, I mean, certainly that's what happened to our family. I mean, the, the irony of my story is that my grandfather, when he died in 2006, was worth about $23, 26000000 million, um, which is an obscene amount of money. Mm. Um, and... You know, my dad was um, one of the youngest of seven ch- children, um, but it was just such a horribly cruel and violent family that my dad had to escape when he was 16 um, and never went back and, you know, kind of was managing cattle stations but didn't own any himself. Um, and so to come from, you know, almost having access to that but not actually um, and then for him to turn around when it all falls to pieces and to, to turf us out into actual poverty, which started when I was seven. You know, my mum was 33, I think, which is the same age I am now, 33 or 34. And she had these three kids, including a newborn and a newly burned boy um, and me in the middle. Um, and we all got chicken pox <laughs> in this public housing estate in Charleville. That was really the beginning of us knowing 
that life was not easy. Um, you know, the cattle station, it, it, it immunises you against many things. And even though at the time I don't think my father got paid a lot of money, we didn't have to pay for anything. We shot our own cattle. Um, so we had an endless supply of beef. Um, we had a veggie patch. You know, we went to town once every three months to do a big shop of non-perishables and powdered milk. But really, it wasn't difficult in a financial sense. But it was for my mum, I guess, in a physically kind of abusive environment um, and emotionally abusive because my father was an extremely traumatised man based on his own upbringing. Um, and then, you know, mum is left alone to do it with us in a world that she hadn't been in for 15 years. And that was really so debilitating. And I, I, I think about this all the time. I have no idea how she did it. Like I think about my coping mechanisms now as a 33-year-old and I don't think I could have done what she did. You went to go to, I mean, you went on to university and from reading your book, it was Bond University and you talk about the fact that um, so many of those that you studied with came from wealthy families and you did not. Can I ask, as we start to talk about this idea of of money, I mean, you went to university in that setting, Mm. you ended up getting a job as a journalist, earning money. Did your upbringing of not having a whole lot impact how you viewed money then? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's impacted my whole life ever since. Um, so, like those intervening years, we were we were dirt poor, um, and I went to a normal, you know, a little tiny Catholic primary school. I think the the school fees were about fifty dollars a term uh, in this country town where we ended up settling. Um, and then I went to the state high school, and I got a scholarship to Bond University, which came with this cadetship, this journalism cadetship. So they were tied together, and I, you know, moved out of home just this starry-eyed kid. I had no reason to believe that life was going to be good to me um, on paper, but I believed it anyway. Uh, And I moved to the Gold Coast at the age of 17 and nine months, having never lived out of home, never earned, you know, enough money to live by myself. You know, I'd had a job since I was 14, but it was just pocket money, really. And I suddenly had to find accommodation and pay my phone bill um, while earning $450 a week as a cadet journalist uh, and studying for the first time in my life at a university where I realized that there were people out there who had not just money, but enormous amounts of it, like enormous amounts. Like I lived with a guy whose father was worth $250 million Wow! um, and was kind of his pet in a weird way because I was this poor kid on a scholarship. And so all of these things kind of combined. The the key issue for me, I think, is that I'd watched my mum struggle literally every hour of every day to find out ways to get us through. And it was so debilitating for her. And I watched her body degrade. I watched her mind degrade to a, to a degree. Like she became anxious. Um, and, you know, at some points when the stress got too much, she became really aggressive and, and loud um, and just yelling because she was under so much pressure. Just I can't even begin to explain how much pressure it was. Uh, and so I saw all of that and then suddenly I'm left to fend for myself um, with no financial support in my family at all and I just spent my money. I spent it all because I didn't want to have to think for a second about the things that mum had to for so long and it did me a great deal of damage because it was always about cutting, making life difficult for a future version of myself but in the present all I wanted was to not think about it. And so I made all of these decisions like going to the ATM every payday 
and taking out all of my money from from my bank account so that the bills couldn't come out and I would just deal with them another time and that way I could live my life. And that was the start of, you know, a terrible uh, cascading series of events that really kind of put me up against it. And I was allegedly the smart one in the family and this is where I ended up. Mm. You have this brand new book on money, which has just come out, and uh, it's an essay. But you you open it in an interesting way, and I'll just quote the uh, the start of the book, if that's okay. Uh, the yep. longest relationship I have ever had was with my debt collector Lee, who got married and witnessed the birth of his first child during the years he was assigned to recover the money I owed on my credit card. Now, I I um, personally have not had this experience, but I can imagine it would be quite a daunting thing being chased by a debt collector. Can you share what that was like being chased and, and how long that went on for? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't mention it in the book, but he wasn't the only one. He was just the nicest one. Oh, okay. um, you know, I, I had people, you know, I had a tow truck company chasing me for money, a hire car company chasing me for money. Uh, he was assigned to collect the credit card debt. Um, and because he worked for a professional outfit, Credit Corps, um, he was, I mean, I think I got lucky, but he was actually a pretty nice guy. And I think, you know, there was a little bit of empathy there because I was just in over my head, right? Hmm. Um, so, you know, I got this credit card just literally days after turning 18. And in my head, I was just like, free money. This is amazing. Um, they, I was earning $450 a week as this cadet journalist. They, from memory, I don't recall ever having to provide them any proof of what I earned. Um, and they gave me this credit card with a $2,500 limit which I immediately maxed out on a single purchase, which was this digital SLR camera, like mm. a semi-professional camera that I'd always wanted because I love photography. Um, and then suddenly I couldn't make the payments. So Lee was assigned to just kind of chase me and it went on for years and years and years. And sometimes it was quite stern. You know, he'd call, he'd be like, come on, mate. He's like, we've talked about this. You said you'd the money would be there and it's not what's going on. Um, and so we kind of ended up having this cat and mouse game over the years where like sometimes I would have the money there for him and to him just to, you know, you couldn't go on not paying it forever. But I realized very quickly that there was a way you could kind of not pay it four times out of five. And as long as you hit the, you know, gave them the cash on the fifth time, you could go back to that four times not paying again. Mm. And so, and it was kind of just an intuition I had and it was, it wasn't. I wasn't trying to defraud anyone. I wasn't trying to make it rich. I just didn't want to go down the gurgler. And if I, some weeks, making those payments meant that I literally wouldn't have been able to eat um, because I had debt and bills coming out of my ears. And I was just thoroughly incapable of meeting all of those obligations. I was just at sea, um, essentially. I, I, you know, I hear about this and I think, okay, so this has happened to, I know this is a very common story, right? Um, credit cards being maxed out and debt collectors trying to get recover those funds. Yet you had a, for the most of this time, had a job as a journalist. Yes. I, I think about others who don't have work. Like that's a whole lot, whole I, lot harder. It, it, it is in, like, I still think about it. I'm like, that happened to me with the relative security of a scholarship. Uh, and a job that I loved. I loved the job so much. Um, but and, and this is where we really get into the nitty-gritty. The, what failed me was that I was a country kid who was living in a city 100 kilometres away with no family or friends. Um, I knew literally no one there. We'd been there like three times in my entire life before I moved there. Mm. 
um, two of them for school camps. And I didn't have any financial support from mum because she was already so poor. And I just refused to even ask because I knew that she'd try and get me 20 bucks, but it would break her because like she loves me um, and I adore her. And when you're in this situation, there's a sometimes like one, I'll give you the best example of when something just goes catastrophically wrong. Right. So um, a couple of years after I moved there, my grandma died. And she didn't have a lot of money, but she had a little bit. And my mum got some. And mum being mum gave me $4,000 to buy my first car. And I needed a car for work. Uh, and it was just this total bomb, this Toyota kind of seeker 1990 model or something like that. And I had it for about six months before I ran up the backside of another car on my way to a job at work. And I just knew nothing about how the world worked. So when I was there, some guy asked me if I wanted the car towed. And I said, sure, because I don't know what to do with it. It's stuck on the road. Left all my possessions in the car. Didn't realize that I there was a $380 fee to get it released, or at mm. least to get access to the car so I could get my possessions. And in that car was a key to the university accommodation that wasn't in my name. It was my friend's that I was staying in illegally because she was living with her boyfriend who was also in university accommodation. So this is the cascading series of events. They were in Peru because they were extremely wealthy and they were on holidays. And the cleaner um, at the accommodation closed my door and locked it one day. And so I couldn't get in. And my key was in this bombed out car that I couldn't access because I couldn't afford the fee. So I ended up sleeping rough um, for two weeks. A couple of those days I slept in a friend's car. Um, Some days I just uh, caught the train all the way up to Brisbane because I had friends from high school who were at university there and I slept on their couch for two weeks while I waited for my, my friends to get back from Peru. Now, that's I'm not saying I don't like to tell that story as a I was homeless story, hmm. but I was sleeping <laughs> rough for two weeks in a, and it was just like, how did I get myself in this position? And it's just a, a matter of one little thing goes wrong. And if you don't have the resources, that, basically means that a whole bunch of other things can fail you and you won't be able to sort them out then and there and they become problems. And that's exactly what that period um, was like for me. It was so incredibly stressful. What I find remarkable about you, Rick, is that you are, you know, you're you're a senior journalist now uh, for the Saturday paper. You have a great career and you've written a couple of books now, but yet so so many of us don't like (laughs) talking about money, right? We don't like talking about what we earn. Yes. We, we compare ourselves to others without knowing the full story, and yet you are here writing a book about your issues with money and your experience with money that's not a positive one. Why, why speak out in this way? Why write a book like On Money? Is it to help others feel like they're not alone if they're facing a similar circumstance to yourself? I think that's part of it. I mean, I mean if I'm perfectly honest, I think I, I wrote it because I, I, I feel like an idiot, uh, and I was hoping that I wasn't the only one. So, you know, there's always a selfish reason behind it. Hmm. But I had this kind of, I had an intuition that, um, let me put it this way, I read a piece about five or six years ago. I can't even remember where it was. It was some online article, right? Um, And it was basically written by this guy who had grown up poor. And he explained something in that piece about the way I dealt with money that I thought was a personal failing that nobody else had ever experienced. And when I read it, I was like, holy shit. like I do that. 
it was mm. like seeing like an, an academic research paper about your life. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm not just uniquely um, unqualified at life. Maybe this is a thing. Maybe there's a psychology here. And, and the more I wrote about it, and particularly now that this book has come out, I've had emails and messages from people on social media just with the exact same experience. It, it's actually floored me because I'm like, I knew it was a thing. I didn't realize it was this big of a thing. Um, and I think I wrote about it for those reasons, but also partly because I think there is a lot of guilt. Like I feel guilty as hell because I have somehow turned, um, even with all of these just completely failed um, approaches to money, I've turned my life into something that on paper looks pretty good. I don't have any structural safety net still as a middle-class man now. And I certainly don't have any savings, but I earn enough that it hasn't kept me back. You know, it's been difficult mm. for the last decade, but in the last three years, I haven't had to think about money in the same way that I used to. And my mum never got to move from that position of poverty. Like she had to stay behind because she sacrificed herself so that us three kids could make something of ourselves. And so the other, you know, kind of psychology here, I guess, is that now that I move around in this world where people are middle class and they've come from middle class families, I hear them talk about money in ways that they just don't think about how gifted they are mm. and how privileged they are because they talk about buying a house as if it's just a procedural um, thing that they need to get through. And then when I ask them, I push them. I'm like, oh, so did you save all this cash? And they're like, oh, no, like mum gave me 20 grand and you know, dad gave me 25 or they went guarantor and it's just so casual and here I am making decisions now about how to support my mum back home and it's just you know there are other people out there who did it a lot worse than me um, and we don't speak about it um, and we don't acknowledge these things in Australia and because we don't speak about or acknowledge them we actually think well if you're poor um, or struggling, then it must somehow be your fault. Mm. Uh, and I hate that. I really hate that. I often think that, um, I don't know whether things have changed since we were kids, but I'm hoping that there's better education in schools about money and money management because I don't think I learned <laughs> I much at all. I wouldn't bet your house on that. No, there was almost nothing. I don't know about you, but they taught me how to fill out a check in year 10 social studies, I think, um, and how to do a withdrawal and deposit form at the bank but literally nothing beyond that. Mm. But let's think about, like, I'm just thinking about our government and and the schemes that are in place and obviously the welfare support that does exist. What do you think that the government needs to do to better support those who are going without? Look, it's, it's as easy and complicated as giving them money. Um, so, <laughs> hmm. like, there is one thing that solves poverty, and it's money. Um, and money without conditions. Um, and I know, oh, God, that's so radical and terrifying um, because I've written a whole book about how terrible I was with money. Mm. Um, and I do, it's, it's probably easy to miss in the book, but I do draw a distinction between myself not being poor anymore. Even in my 20s, I was broke, but I wasn't poor because on paper I could, you know, theoretically make all these things work. Um, but my mum was poor and she never wasted a cent, like ever. And 
what would have made our life a lot easier was just having enough money to live on. And she, you know, she was working at the same time as getting the single parent pension. Um, and I, I don't mean to make a distinction between the quote unquote deserving or undeserving poor. Um, the thing is we're all in the same situation and people make decisions in those, you know, in, in the kind of teeth of bare knuckle survival, people make decisions that from the outside, from our position now as middle-class men, um, they they don't seem to be rational, but in the heat of the moment, they are incredibly rational decisions. You know, if you get a tax return and you're on welfare or you get like a little supplement with the coronavirus and suddenly you've got enough money all at once to buy a new TV um, and we sledge them for buying, you know, electronics. And I'm like, well, what would you do in that situation if that was you? Because you know for a fact that this, you know, let's say it's a $500 bonus you know for a fact that $500 is not going to structurally lift you out of poverty. Mm. In fact, it will do almost nothing to change your fate. Um, But what it will do is allow you to buy um, something that either makes your life easier um, or makes it more fun. Um, And survival is just as much about having hope as it is about actually meeting the the biological requirements of, of living, which is, you know, food and shelter. So, attaching conditions to welfare money is just so perverse because we're essentially saying we don't trust you and that um, we're only doing this because we feel like, you know, at, at bare bones, we, we kind of have to, but we really don't want to. And psychologically what that does to a person is so traumatizing and debilitating. And I've, you know, I've lived with those consequences myself as an adult and I wasn't even the worst example that you'll find in this country of people who suffered. And it has, it has totally permeated my entire life. Um, and so a welfare system where, particularly for families with kids, if you give people enough to live on, you'd be surprised at what they end up achieving later on in life um, and, and, and about how little stress you, there can be in a life and about how that opens up possibilities. But we just don't do it. Hmm. I remember hearing you talk about the fact that we often see, say, at the shops, um, a discount, and you think, "Oh, well, why don't you just, you know, people who don't have a whole lot of money can just stock up mm-hmm. at times like that?" But it actually doesn't work like that, right? Like it's not that simple. No, <laughs> like even recently, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I still couldn't because I was terrible with money. I couldn't go to the shops and take advantage of the buy in bulk deals or the two for ones, um, or you know, I use the example of toilet paper in the book. Like poor people pay more per roll of toilet paper than rich people do. Um, and I, I use the word rich just very generously here for saying, you know, anyone who earns enough to live. And that's just a really handy, I guess, example of a day-to-day example where poor people pay more because they don't actually have the economies of scale within their own bank account mm. to take advantage of these things that are out there. And in fact, that was one of the key issues that Senator Jackie Lambie had with the higher education reforms um, that went through um, only a couple of weeks ago now because the government, you know, thinking, oh, we need to get her vote. How about we just say, well, we'll give you an even bigger discount if you pay your university fees up front. Well, who's that helping? It's certainly not helping people who are already suffering. It's helping people who can afford to do it. And so often the price of admission uh, to having kind of even a deal or a discount or a comfortable way of living is more than people can afford. Hmm. And, and that's the problem. Um, that that is actually really when we get down to it that's um, the core issue right there 
Rick, it's been a fascinating conversation talking about uh, money and obviously you go into more detail in your book on money. But as we finish, what shall we do about money? Yeah, man, I look, I've thought about this. I, I didn't grow up in a political house, so I'm, you know, I don't have um, a, a brain for the, uh, these ideas that people would call Marxism or socialism or whatever. Mm. Um, I just don't see things like that. Um, but I do think... I do think that money is a myth, right? Like we, we've attached so much power to it that just doesn't exist because it's a, it's a figment of our collective imaginations. Um, it has to be. So, you know, I just, I wish there was a way to kind of imprint upon people that, that money is not a measure of worth, certainly not moral character, and that the only reason it appears to make some people better people um, on the surface is because it buys a lot of things that make those connections easier, that make you know speech and ideas and discussion easier. It, it buys you confidence, and you know if we could eradicate it entirely, I'd so be on board with that. Um, but I honestly um, don't know how that would work, and I don't. I'm, I'm not the guy to solve that riddle, unfortunately. But you know, I certainly know that in the moments when I've been happiest, it's when I've got other things around me. Is it's when I've got. A house over my head, yes, and enough food to eat. But beyond that, it hasn't been because I've earned more money. I can I can assure you of that. <laughs> mm, mm. Well, look, I really appreciate your honesty in this book and, and of course, your previous book, 100 Years of Dirt. Um, I've been really um, challenged by it personally and, uh, and also talking to you now on the podcast. Thanks for joining me, Rick Morton. Thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. Rick Morton's new book is called On Money. And I also thoroughly recommend picking up his previous work, the incredibly moving memoir, 100 Years of Dirt. Rick Morton is on Twitter at squigglyrick, and you can find out more about Rick at rickmorton.com.au. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. It gives me a great thrill that you have and would love for you to subscribe so you never miss an episode as they drop in your feeds every Tuesday. You can also connect with the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And feel free to shoot me an email anytime at whatshallwedopod at gmail.com. I'm always keen to hear from you. What Shall We Do About is hosted and produced by me, Sam Robinson, with original theme music by Chad Gardner. I'll see you next time.